In the past few decades, workers' wages have flatlined. We've fueled our economy through debt, personal debt. And if we want to have a sustainable recovery, we need to have an economy that actually rewards all of the people who work for that economy and not just the CEOs at the top. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. Today's show is sponsored by Clio Landy Insurance and Top Class Actions. My uh, legal blog is called May It Please the Court. I have a book out called How to Get Sued. And Bob, uh, here to announce that on October 6th, my second book is coming out called Bad Decisions, 10 Famous Cases That Went Wrong. Well, congratulations, Craig. I'm glad we got to hear it here first. That's right. Uh, (laughs) There's been a lot of discussion in the news uh, of late about the proposed uh, Federal Employee Free Choice Act of 2009, the uh, EFCA. Uh, For those who are not familiar with it, the bill would allow employees to designate an exclusive representative for collective bargaining purposes by virtue of a card check only without the need for uh, an election to take place. And it would also uh, allow mandatory arbitration uh, of uh, collective bargaining uh, negotiations uh, if, uh, if bargaining for a first contract uh, reached uh, – it was not concluded within 90 days. 120. 120. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our guest who we'll get to in just a minute. But this bill is some, what some refer to as the card check, which will change the rules governing the formation of unions, the way first contracts between unions and employees are negotiated and how employees' rights are enforced. President Obama has voiced his support for the bill, where critics like Senator Arlen Specter oppose the Free Choice Act and apparently have said that they're not going to sign on. Uh, experts both for and against legislation agree it would be the most significant labor law passed since the National Labor Relations Act of 1935. And as was just demonstrated, there are people who are far more knowledgeable about this than I am. And uh, fortunately, we're going to have a couple of them on today. Uh, we're going to start in the first segment today with one guest and then uh, proceed into a second segment with uh, with a second guest. Well, and our our first guest, Bob, will be Professor Richard Epstein. He is the James Parker Hall Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. He is also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Since 2007, he's been a visiting professor of law at the New York University School of Law and will be joining as a permanent faculty member in 2010. At present, he is the director of the John M. Olin Program in Law and Economics. He's also consulted on this statute or proposed statute with several employer groups. Welcome to the show, Professor Richard Epstein. Glad to be here. Let's, um, if we can, get you to start off by giving our audience a kind of a general description of the Employee Free Choice Act and then perhaps uh, a current status update. 
Okay, well, the provision has three sections. Uh, the first is one which is designed to deal with organization drives, and it's all one-sided in the sense that it increases the penalties for unfair labor practices committed by employers but does nothing with respect to those committed by employees. And its purpose is essentially to stifle what has been quite effective on the other side to with campaigns to resist unionization by employers. These campaigns are very complex. Uh, there are all sorts of markers of Queensbury rules about them, but the dominant strategy that employers have, have applied with some real success has been quite simply to point out what happens to unionized firms in places like automobile and steel and uh, parts and accessories, and you see the devastation, and workers are reluctant to do it. Uh, the second part of the act has to do with the card check, which you mentioned, which is you could collect your cards from any source, keep them, and then at the appropriate time present them to somebody at the National Labor Relations Board if there are more than 50% in some designated unit and the workers and the union basically gets to define the unit, then it's recognized and there's no secret ballot election. And the objection to that has always been on the grounds of physical intimidation and misrepresentation, no ability to get your cards back once you've signed them, whole variety of other procedural safeguards that could have been added but were not. And in general, the secret ballot elections have, I think, worked pretty well. That's the way the general counsel sees it for the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board. I think his data is actually pretty good on this. And the third piece, which in many ways is most most dangerous, in my view, is the sort of mandatory interest arbitration provision. Arbitration has always been a long feature of collective bargaining agreements, but it's always been for grievances underneath um, an accepted agreement. This allows an arbitrator with no particular guidelines, no timeline whatsoever, just to draft a collective bargaining agreement. To give you some idea of how complex that is, uh, the standard agreements in an industry, which all union industries are, marked by distrust, can run a thousand pages. Uh, they vary wildly from one firm to another. It's extremely difficult to how, know how you mesh the operations of a business with the requirements of your labor contract, and a panel of arbitrators appointed by the federal Conciliation and Mediation Board has basically plenary power to draft this contract and to force it on both sides so that workers never get any say in either the selection of their union collectively or in the ratification of the contract. An employer could be saddled with a contract which changes his work rules, prevents contracting out, imposes very large pension obligations, changes the health care system. All of these things can happen at once, and there is, as best I can tell from the statute, no appeal. Uh, so this is a real transformation of business. Essentially, if you get 50% of the cards, you own a part piece of the industry. Well, and Professor, you, you think this is not just bad policy, but you've written in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere that you think it's unconstitutional. Explain, yes, explain that. Well, I mean, the, the arguments are different in the two halves, but the original understanding of the Wagner Act, which was the 1935 version, was that um, employees were given their right to opt out of various kinds of arrangements um, and contract on their own in exchange for rights to participate in some kind of an election and dialogue over the formation of a union. And now you can have essentially a stealth union organized so that you don't have to give any notice to the opposition, no notice to the employer. And it's not that you're just talking. It's what you're doing is you're making legislative acts because at the end of the day, you get uh, the union, you bind dissenters. And I think to the extent that the First Amendment has been held rightly, in my view, to protect rights of association, the card check method completely bypasses uh, the prerequisites, which is meaningful deliberation and participation in such a practice. And so 
you can speak at this particular point, but you can't speak to your enemy because you don't even know that he's there. Uh, the second half, I think, is even more clearly unconstitutional. Um, if somebody came up to you and says, the government has decided that it's going to take your house and it's worth $100 to you, but it's going to pay you 50 bucks, I think you would say, hey, you can't do that. That's a taking of private property. And that's what they're doing to these firms. They're basically going forward and they're announcing, here's a set of contracts. You would never sign these things voluntarily, but we're going to impose upon them on you, and so therefore, to the extent that they're forcing you to accept uh, $50 worth of labor for $100 worth of fees, um, it seems to me that you've got to claim that they've taken the other $50 from you. Uh, so that the sort of effort to sort of completely run the business is a radical transformation of what was originally an unwise statute. I'm not a defender of the current statute, but the current statute always gave voting rights and exit rights, and the unions are, are nettled by both of them, so they stopped the voting and they stopped the exit rights, which means in a sense, once they knock on the door, they own the shop. And it seems to me that you cannot do that consistent with any kind of constitution that believes in limited government or consistent with the constitutional decisions that upheld the National Labor Relations Act back in 1937. Well, Professor Epstein, and I've, I've always wanted to do this, and that's to ask a law professor to argue the other side. It, it seems kind of just desserts after all these years of being out of law school. But is yeah, there I anything understand. in this statute that benefits employees? Look, um, yes, the answer is there are always some employees who will benefit, and we know this because there's some who are willing to sign the card check. But that is not the question you want to ask ultimately. The question is whether or not, when you benefit some workers, you're going to improve the system overall. And so here are two things that you have to worry about. One is there'll be short-term benefits for some workers, but other workers who don't want to join the union are going to be left worse off in consequence. They may have to quit and go into some other kind of job at great personal cost. So those costs have to be taken into account. And the same thing is true on the employer side. I mean, they may have non-unionized employees who will surely be hurt uh, by the creation of the situation. They will have shareholders who will surely be hurt. They will have customers and suppliers who will surely be hurt. And so what you cannot do is to justify any statute by saying, gee, the people who win under the statute um, are the only ones who count. This is tantamount to saying, here's a business. It can raise its prices by entering into an illegal cartel. Can we prove that the members of the cartel are benefited by joining? Answer, yes. Have we proved that it's a socially desirable arrangement? No. And essentially, these labor statutes create labor unions that have monopoly positions, and like all monopolies, they reduce output, they increase costs, and what they do is, in the end, they create systematic social losses. And indeed, with unions, it works because they don't know how to divide the gain. So whenever you get a union, you get work rules, seniority rules, job banks, all of which are highly inefficient arrangements. So the right question to say is, why do we ever want to pass a statute which will give some people a systematic effort to go for the gold at the time when the social losses will far exceed their private gains? Well, but isn't the answer for that that some people now see it the other way around? Now They now see it that the employer has the advantage in, in you know going for the gold here in that the employer, once they know there's an election campaign going on, uh, you know holds a lot of the cards, has much more control over the election process, has much more control over the message that's delivered to employees and is able to uh, more or less unilaterally deli deliver a particular well, I mean, message. I think 
there, there are two points about this. One is the election campaigns are, are very zooey affairs, and that's because the statute forces this bilateral arrangement in which you must have a, you have a duty to bargain in good faith with the union. This never happens in competitive markets, but labor markets under the statute are by definition non-competitive. But the actual evaluation of which way the advantage goes, there are two points that have to be remembered. One is that the basic rules of organization and campaigns have not changed seriously in over 50 years. And the decline um, started very early on, so it's not Republican, it's not Democrat, it's matched in other countries. Uh, the long-term dynamics are that unions present a less attractive option in a world in which there's more competitive firms in capital markets and in, in, in product markets than they do today, and where there's higher level of worker turnover. And secondly, if you're actually trying to figure out which way the advantages are, the union has very many serious advantages. It is not in a position where it can only make predictions, it can make explicit promises, it can talk to people off-site, it can decide when to push for an election, it can decide the unit that it wishes to have the election in, it can decide the timing of the election. Uh, unions are able to hold back on forcing an election in an effort to get a card check arrangement through by an employer and using pickets and other kinds of regulatory tactics. So I think if you were to actually look at this particular battlefield, you would not conclude that it's one-sided. And in fact, in the outcomes, they're not one-decided. Unions win uh, a little more than half the elections with a little fewer than half the votes, roughly speaking. This is not the sign of a system which is completely out of whack. There are some people that have said that unions have outlived their usefulness. Is this a, an attempt to try and avoid that? Well, the, if they've outlived their unionists, this is an effort to prop them up past the point of sensibility. Remember, the risk that you run when you have strong unionized firms is they all go the way of General Motors. And so if you're trying to figure out what the real decline in wages are, have now probably close to three-quarters of a million UAW members out of work by the time this thing runs its cycle, losing 80% of their income when they go to the next level job. Um, I think, in effect, that the more you try to prop this system up by very strong cartel-like rules, the more you're going to risk system-wide failure of bankruptcy. You can go back um, 10 years ago, and all the union guys were always telling you, and they meant it, we don't make any money if we drive General Motors under. And what happened is they didn't want to drive General Motors under. They just miscalculated a bit, and they did drive them under. And that's the risk that you, you face in all of these cases. Uh, people who want to be aggressive can be a little bit too aggressive, and they can kill the goose that lays the golden egg. And frankly, nobody wants to be that golden egg who's going to be basically sucked dry by somebody else and then left to die when the whole thing goes bankrupt. Well, Professor, we're about out of time uh, for this segment of the program. And before we leave you, we wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of uh, wrap up with your final thoughts. And also, if you'd like to uh, tell our listeners how to follow up with you, uh, you're welcome to do that as well. Okay, look, I'm first on the last thing on where to follow up. Uh, there, I do have a book which is online, and you just can go to the Social Science Research Network and type in my name in the Case Against the Employee Free Choice Act, and it will pop up. And so you can download the thing free of charge to read an exhaustive account of, of what this is about. If I were to summarize, I would say uh, the following situation is true. The current labor law is far from ideal. It has many tensions that are built into it, which has led to the kinds of systematic failures that you see now in industries like automobile and steel. Uh, but it's always possible to make a bad system worse and to pretend that it has no defects and to increase the level of government coercion associated with its operation. 
And the Employee Free Choice Act is really trying to do that by essentially allowing unions through a card check to gain a voice at the table and then to have a series of government arbitrators all appointed by the Obama administration um, to seal the deal on their behalf. Uh, This two-step is essentially a partial nationalization of every firm which is going to be subject to this control. And it really ought to be resisted. Otherwise, we will have a level of government domination followed by economic stagnation, which will make everybody the loser. Well, Richard Epstein, thank you very much for being a guest today. Uh, We really appreciate your time and your thoughts. All right. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Thank you. And Bob, we need to take a quick break at this point. When we return, we'll be joined by Nancy Schiffer, Associate General Counsel for the AFL-CIO. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. When it comes to protecting your legal practice, how confident are you that your professional liability insurance provides the best possible coverage for the best possible price? At the Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency, we know that law firms insured with us can answer yes on both counts. Visit our website at www.landy.com for a convenient online application or call us at 800-336-5422 for prompt and personal attention. TopClassActions.com ethically connects attorneys to potential clients. At TopClassActions.com, attorneys can review submissions, locate effective plaintiffs for new lawsuits, or advertise your settlement to add more claimants. With membership in our attorney network, you review complaints submitted by Top Class Actions viewers, and it's free to try. No credit card required for the free membership. Go to TopClassActions.com slash attorney. That's TopClassActions.com slash attorney. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We'd like to welcome Attorney Nancy Schiffer, Associate General Counsel with the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, known as the AFL-CIO. Prior to coming to the AFL-CIO, Ms. Schiffer was Deputy General Counsel of the United Auto Workers in Detroit, Michigan. She served on the UAW legal staff from 1982 to 2000. Nancy's work focuses on worker organizing and member mobilization, state and local legislation in support of workers' rights, and NRLA jurisprudence and procedure. She also administers the AFL-CIO Law Student Union Summer Program, a 10-week internship for activist law students interested in union-side labor law. Welcome to the show, Nancy Schiffer. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we've just had uh, 15 minutes with Professor Epstein on uh, his viewpoints of the Employee Free Choice Act. So can you give us the union side? Sure. And I want to thank you very much for bringing this issue to your audience. It's been um, quite quite a journey in the last few years. We look back and see how this issue has really attained national prominence, although it's been uh, quite a scandal for some time. Um, What the Employee Free Choice Act does is try to make changes. It's an amendment to the National Labor Relations Act to uh, help workers who want to form a union so they can bargain for a better life. And 
sort of the entrance to this whole debate, I think, is that the middle class is in serious trouble. It's all over the news. It's not sort of a debatable issue. Uh, Wages have stagnated. We're bailing out Wall Street. And we workers have not shared in America's prosperity in recent decades. We have CEOs who have controlled the process. We see what's happened with that in all areas, but also including in worker organizing. And even though CEOs' salaries used to be they made about 40 times what workers make, and now they make 364 times what workers make. And so the wealth our country has been producing has really flowed to a tiny minority of very wealthy people. And many economists have written on this issue and, and uh, concluded that, uh, that workers who have the uh, ability to bargain with their employers are able to increase their health care benefits, the likelihood that they'll have pensions, the likelihood that they'll have more economic security. Um, and so that's what this bill does, is it removes some of the current obstacles to worker organizing. Well, Nancy, uh, we, we just heard from uh, Professor Epstein, this, you know, one, a couple of the criticisms that we're hearing of this bill is that it uh, gives union organizers too strong an ability to perhaps try and unduly influence uh, the outcome of a card check. And it uh, he would argue that it actually reduces the First Amendment <laughs> rights of uh, employers and that it, it doesn't give them a fair say in the election process. What's your response to that? Well, yeah, one of the things that the Employee Free Choice Act does is allow workers to decide how they want to form their union. It's always been legal to form a union either through the NLRB's election process or through an NLRB process called majority sign-up. It's just that under current law, even if all of the workers say we want to have a union, the employer has no obligation to honor their their uh, voice and no obligation to recognize or bargain with the union at that point and pushes the workers then through this election process. And what the Employee Free Choice Act does is let workers decide how they want to organize so they can organize through majority sign-up or through the election process. And the election process has been, um, has really created a lot of obstacles for workers that want to organize. So to me, the First Amendment issue is, do workers have full freedom of association? Do workers have the ability to form a union if they want to without fear, without coercion, without intimidation? And the current process, I think, does not protect their uh, right to freedom of association in that way. And so what Epstein argues, apparently, is that employers somehow won't have an opportunity to talk as much about the union. Is that the argument that he makes? I th- well, I think that's it. That they won't have the, the the ability to sort of engage in a campaign uh, during the pre-election, uh, the pre uh, you know vote process. Mm-hmm. And as it is now, employers basically have full access to workers. The union files a, a petition, and uh, during the time between that and when the election process, uh, the election actually takes place. The employers uh, flood workers with literature. They have mandatory meetings with workers. They show them videos. They have they talk to them about why the union is bad, what will happen if the union comes in, that they predict all these bad things that will happen, um, threaten workers, um, and so on, both legal and illegal, and create this real intensive atmosphere of, of coercion and intimidation among the workforce. This has been documented in lots of studies 
in, in lots of research, Human Rights uh, Report has written on this, that it's a, a violation of international uh, rights standards. So what he's saying is that the employer, who has total access to workers, will somehow be denied a voice. I just don't even see how practically that manifests itself, much less why that would be a, a First Amendment violation. Right. And then his other constitutional objection is uh, focuses more on the mandatory uh, arbitration provision of this bill, uh, which would, uh, you know, uh, I guess, mandate uh, uh, FMCS uh, oversight of, of the negotiating process if it gets to a certain point uh, in the first uh, for a first contract and there is no contract at that point. Uh, and that that uh, ostensibly amounts to a, a, a taking, I guess, in, in his yeah. view. And I'd like to address. I'd like to address that. But I. But I would like to first sort of des- describe what this interest um, arbitration provision is, and and why we have it. Um, right now, there's approximately a 44 percent failure rate under the National Labor Relations Act, and by that I mean that in 44 percent of newly organized. Uh, workplaces, the workers never get their first contract. And, you know, any any law that has a 44% failure rate needs some serious legislative attention. And so what the Employee Free Choice Act does is it tries to incentivize, that's what it's aimed at, tries to incentivize bargaining uh, between the parties. Right now, bargaining is actually, there's a disincentive to bargain. Because after 12 months, the uh, employer can get rid of the union. And so what this process does is to try to turn that around so there's an incentive to actually reach an agreement. And the interest arbitration is part of that process. There's a, med- there's a bargaining process, a mediation, uh, interest arbitration. And the uh, intent of the, of the act is that the, the process would be put together so that we can um, make it more likely that the parties reach agreement as opposed to less likely under the current system. And where studies have shown that where these interest arbitrations are put together well, we bring down the actual use of the interest arbitration to 10% or less. And so it really does help the parties reach bargaining. Now let me talk about the takings. And I'm going to refer to um, Professor Michael Gottesman at Georgetown University uh, Law Center, who's a constitutional and labor law scholar, um, wrote specifically about Professor Epstein's uh, argument on the takings clause. And he points out that if his interpretation, Professor Epstein's interpretation, would be adopted by a court, and and in fact, Professor Epstein has argued in in prior writings that these are also takings, minimum wage, unemployment benefits, welfare laws, zoning, and so on. All of these things under his theory, rent control, would be unconstitutional takings, and that, and that in his interpretation, um, these arguments have not been adopted, and these uh, um, minimum wage, so on, have not been held to be takings, and that it's the same argument that Professor Epstein is proposing here with respect to the interest arbitration. Now, Senator Arlen Specter has said that now's not the time to pass this legislation because of the hard economic times. And there have been some people that have alleged that um, essentially the unions have, have crushed GM and the auto industry and brought it to its knees in the, in the current situation that it is. What's, what's the union's response to those allegations? Um, I think the union, the, the, this response, I think, was, was best stated by there are about 30 prominent economists who took out an ad in the 
Washington Post and I think New York Times in the last uh, a couple of weeks. And they said that actually now is the time, now is when it's actually essential that we uh, pass the Employee Free Choice Act because we need to have a sustainable economic recovery. In the past few decades, workers' wages have flatlined. We've fueled our economy through debt, personal debt. And if we want to have a sustainable recovery, we need to have an economy that actually rewards all of the people who work for that economy and not just the CEOs at the top. And, and so their, their argument is that it's more important now, not less important, but more important now to create this broadly shared prosperity to, to um, turn around this growing inequality and that uh, empowering workers to be able to form unions and bargain collectively is the way to do that. Well, and didn't the Wagner Act come out of a similar economy originally anyway? The Wagner Act was passed in 1935, and some people attributed the rise in unionism that followed after that very much to bringing us out of the, helping to bring us out of the Great Depression and brought us, as, as the rate of unionism went up in the following years, brought us into the sort of the unprecedented post-war prosperity. And, I mean, we, we know that unions brought us um, not just legislative minimum wage and uh, uh, 40-hour work week and so on, but the weekend, <laughs> uh, paid vacations and so on, pension benefits, health care benefits, all of those started on the bargaining table. Earlier you mentioned that the um, minimum wage constituted a taking. How could that be? No, I didn't say that. I said this is something that Professor Epstein has advocated in prior writings. And so under his theory of taking, it's it's such a broad, expansive theory of taking, uh, uh, constitutional takings, that even minimum wage would would be under under his theory unconstitutional. Where is this bill, and and what are the likelihood, what's the likelihood that we're going to see this become law? It was introduced in the House and Senate Earlier this month, Senator Tom Harkin and Representative George Miller held a press conference at that time. Uh, Tom Harkin called the introduction a defining moment to put power back in the hands of those who made America, and Representative George Miller called it vital to our economic recovery, a critical piece of our economic recovery. And, and so it may go first in the House. It did last time in 07. It may go first in the Senate, but it'll go through the process. It goes through the committee process and markup and then to the floor. We, we will have labor law reform. We have the support of the president. <laughs> we have support of the majority of the American people, and, and we, we will get there. Isn't this a failed bill at this point? No, I don't think it's a failed bill. Who told you that? <laughs> well, my understanding is that it's been taken off the table. I, I don't, it's no, no, not no, an active no. bill? Not been, yes, yes. It's not been taken off the table. It's absolutely no, no. It was a big disappointment. Um, Senator Specter had been a co-sponsor of the bill. He had um, uh, voted for cloture in 07. Uh, um, so it was a big disappointment. I, 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 I think that it was um, uh, his supporters in Pennsylvania. Uh, I, I think it was a rebuke to them, to working class people in Pennsylvania. But he's not the only senator. 
and there are other senators that we've been talking to, and so we, we remain confident that we'll be able to enact labor law reform. It's such a critical issue. You know, we always have the uphill fight. <laughs> we don't have $200 million that the business community has pledged to spend against this. Um, well, we're, we're, we asked Professor Epstein to argue the other side of the the uh, bill and how it affected empl- affected employees, and I, I think it's fair to ask you to do the same thing. How? What kind of adverse effects is this bill going to have on business? I I'm not sure that I actually see it that way, because I think that businesses actually profit by having a workforce that feels like they have a voice at work. And that you see the impact of that in productivity, in attendance, in morale, um, in, and in having workers feel that they have a stake in their job. So I hope what the result of this is, is that it's a win-win for everyone. And that um, we have a process where workers can form unions without the confrontation and the, uh, th- th- this us versus them uh, election process we have now that it will be a process that employers don't need to don't need to be uh, afraid of, and that we'll uh, be able to have collectively bargained agreements where we actually reach agreements. There's a, a a sailor actually a writer who wrote a book called There Be No Dragons. He was talking about sailing across open ocean. <laughs> Um, but, but I think that that's a similar analogy when uh, business and the unions come together, that once they come together with a real purpose to uh, collectively bargain, uh, that, they, that they will reach agreement and that it will be a win-win situation for them. Nancy, we're uh, out of time here, and we did want to just uh, give you an opportunity, if you'd like, to kind of give your, your concluding thoughts on this. And if you'd like also uh, to tell our listeners how they can either follow up with you or, or uh, find out more information about the AFL-CIO's position on this, you're welcome to do that as well. Okay. Let me do that first so I don't forget. Um, uh, some good sources are our website, which is aflcio.org, no hyphen, aflcio.org. Also, AmericanRightsAtWork.org has a lot of materials on the Employee Free Choice Act, and the Economic Policy Institute also has a lot of information on the uh, economic aspects of the bill. As I said, I think that there has been clear demonstration through research, scholarly research, um, that there is a real need to fix the National Labor Relations Act, that it presents obstacles and hurdles to workers who want to form unions, that it incentivizes not reaching agreement instead of the other way around, and that it provides such paltry penalties for employers who violate the law. Human Rights Watch, you can go on their website, hrw.org, did a report in 2000. They've recently updated it where they did case studies to show what workers go through. It's something that's not sort of known in the general, general experience. And it's a very difficult situation when workers try to organize. And what workers see is that the people who support the union are harassed, they're intimidated, they're spied on. Um, I've been spied on in organizing campaigns as the union's lawyer. And that's what they see, that that the NLRB has no power to affect their employer's behavior. They watch their employer do things that, that violate the law, and it doesn't matter. And so... What this bill does is fix those things. It gives workers a choice of how they organize through majority sign-up or the election process. 
It incentivizes collective bargaining. It doesn't replace collective bargaining. It's designed to help provide an alternative resolution process for collective bargaining. And it increases penalties so that the act actually finally has some teeth to it. Well, Nancy, thank you very much for participating in our program today. And that about does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. Bob, remember, for our listeners, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And let me add my thanks to uh, Nancy Schiffer of the AFL-CIO and a reminder to our listeners that we are also in the uh, in the iTunes library under podcasts. Thanks a lot. Talk Thank to you next week, so Kate. much. Thank you. And we'll be back next week to discuss another great legal topic. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.